See, we tricked you. It's not John, it's me. We're in Mark chapter 4 this morning, continuing the teaching of Jesus' parables. He's using these proverbial stories to provoke us, to consider the nature and the reality of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a different kind of kingdom. It's different than we might expect. But at the center, at the center for you and me this morning, by grace, through faith, is, is Christ. So that's always the prayers we come to God's word, that the Spirit would work in the word to unite us to Christ. I wonder if a few of you in this room know what a, know what a meme is. Raise your hand up a little bit. Give me a little T-Rex if you know what a meme is. Right, I see a few T-Rexes in the audience. Okay, well, some of you know what the far side is, those comics. Remember those old far side calendars that you could like rip off one page every day? Uh, the digital version of that is kind of like a meme. It's sort of a one panel joke that has some subtle underlying humor to it. And I saw one this week that I thought was kind of funny. Basically, how do you tell, how can you tell what kind of church someone goes to? How can you tell what kind of church someone goes to? We ask him this question. What kind of clothes do the pastors wear? Does your pastor dress like a hippie, a rapper, a bad businessman, or a wizard? Answer that question and you'll know what kind of church they go to. So yeah, pastors dress differently, people at church dress differently, whatever. But what a true church has in common is the coming of the kingdom of God proclaimed from the word of God that leads us and situates us and unites us to Christ so that we're not here to get beat up and we're not here for more religion and rules. Jesus, help. But we're also not here to peacock around and strut in our good deeds and moralism and religiosity. We're here with empty hands to be fed, to be healed, to receive the grace of God that is, as John said, mercifully, by kindness, turns us from the empty wells and the broken cisterns, turns us away from death and toward the living water, the one who saves Jesus, who is the Christ. The only thing that makes a church a church and the only thing that makes a church unique is Jesus, this message of the kingdom of God that, that doesn't come through our efforts or our inquiry or you somehow, you know, going out to, the, to find the right decoder ring so that you can get the secret, but it is proclaimed over you. It is given to you as a gift. And yet this same gifted kingdom, which is so full of grace and mercy that you can never try as we often might exhaust, comes in ways that we do not expect. Ways that if it were up to us, if you were God for a day, none of us would even be here. But ways that if you were in charge and you were in control would be oh so different. So the parables that reveal the coming of the kingdom of Christ are meant to, to confront, boldly confront our assumptions about who God is, what he does, how he works, when he works, why he needs to work a little bit quicker. Thank you very much, Lord. They're meant to confront our assumptions and our expectations, to put our autonomy, our self-law, our wanting to be our own gods on notice. This is the heart of sin, right? Sin isn't, I did bad things, me do bad deeds, shame, shame, tisk, tisk. 
The heart of sin is deeply, apart from his help, to be redeemed in Jesus, the second Adam. We are all daughters and sons of the first Adam. And most deeply, even though we clean it up, we know how to clean it up, right? In 21st century America, we can clean it up real nice. But most deeply, we kind of want to be our own gods, build our own kingdoms, and do it our own way. This is what Mark is trying to get at. You know, the point of these parables is that there's a different kind of kingdom that Jesus is revealing here. So buckle up and get ready. But the question that's underneath the point, the the question that really digs into and puts focus on our fallen condition and our need for a savior is that we kind of want God as king on our terms. Irony of ironies. I want God as my king on my terms. We want the gift, right? You, I want blessings. I want that thorn to be taken away finally out of my flesh. I want to get through this painful and difficult season. I want the blessing. We want the gift. And yet frequently, I find myself neglecting the giver. I see this in my own life all the time. You know, you, you can have the right doctrine, but if you really want to know if you believe in the sovereign grace of God, consider your prayer life. That'll set you straight real quick. I see this in my, my own life. When I'm doing good or I think I'm doing good, yeah, it's, it's all praise, it's all up, it's all rejoicing. At best, at worst, it's forgetfulness. But man, when things are hard, when there's suffering and struggle, how quick I am to turn to the Lord and go, what are you doing, man? Why aren't you doing what I need you to do when I need you to do it? Have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? Am I somehow now outside the camp, outside the reality and the blessing of your kingdom? And so the parables of Jesus, again, dig into our souls, not in a punitive way, not into I want to beat you up way, but into I I need you to see how much you need me so that I can meet every need sort of a way. They dig into our souls to show us all, all, all the times and ways you know, that we're no different than Aladdin, seeking out the cave of wonders so that we can eventually find the lamp, rub it, and get the genie with the three wishes. Jesus says, no, all that striving, all that religion, all that work, all that earning, all that merit is never enough, and there's something better. There's something so much better, the kingdom that Jesus reveals. So it not only confronts us in our idols, but, but it also comforts us. In all of our needs, these parables, these four, as we'll see, are are a revelation of God's grace. They come with questions. They come with, choose this day who you will serve. They come with warnings. But for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, those who trust and depend on Christ by faith, they come with all the blessing and grace that you need. Mark wants us to listen. The Greek word for parable can loosely be associated with the Hebrew for proverb. Wise saying. Mark wants us to listen with a mind that is fixed on Christ. Because we're, we're told by Jesus and throughout Mark's gospel that those who have ears to hear are going to receive beautiful blessings from these stories. But those who are obstinate and hard-hearted and already understand and know the right way and the right thing to do, thank you very much, will incur Blindness and judgment, spiritually speaking. 
So Jesus here wants to, he wants to provoke our imagination that we might live and listen better, that we might really hear about what the kingdom really is so that you might have joy, God might be glorified, and you actually have something different to bring out to your friends in Santa Fe. Something different than, you know, try harder, be a better person, strive more, make more money, success, all of those sorts of things. Not bad in of themselves, but as we know, they don't satisfy. Mark encourages us to really hear what Jesus is saying, to listen. That's in verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Now, I admit, I know none of you do, but I admit that sometimes I may struggle with listening. It's possible. Please don't ask my wife about that. No, I try. We all struggle with listening sometimes. Remember when I was at UNM, uh, University of New Mexico, and like all the freshmen are hanging outside this place called Mitchell Hall. So cool. You know, everybody's just trying to like, I don't know. So weird. (laughs) Uh, And you could always tell when you were talking to someone and they were looking right through you like, oh yeah, cool man. Yeah, what'd you do this weekend? You know, oh, what were you up to? Did you go to Frontier? Hang out, you know, they were always looking to see if someone was cooler than you. Or perhaps a pretty girl might be walking by that they needed to talk to. And it, it gave you the feeling, and I know I've struggled with this in my life, but like you're not really listening to me. You're not present. You don't really care. And so the questions that these parables well up within us are questions of, will you care? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the king and his kingdom? And the promise on the back end is, is if you'll trust him, he can change your whole life. He can forgive anything. He can help you with any trauma, any brokenness, any need. He can raise the dead. He can can make the sad things come untrue. He can redeem. He hasn't given up on you. Your story's not over. And to hear in the Bible is also to respond. To not merely be a hearer of the word, but a doer. And so as we're told that the kingdom is not what we think, The question comes back to us, will we have eyes to see and ears to hear our king and the coming of his kingdom? Mark gives us these four stories, four stories, four kingdom realities that I think are designed to kind of mess with us and our assumptions and expectations about what God should do and why he should do it. The first one we see is a lamp. The point here is that the kingdom of God is coming and it cannot be hidden. It is the kingdom of Jesus that gives light to the whole world. It not only gives light, but the light of the lamp reveals all. It reveals the plan of God and the will of God, and it reveals us. The kingdom can't be hidden. Now, you you may know that in those days, their lamps were these little clay lamps. If you've you know, I don't know, maybe been to the ancient Near East or Israel, or you can even see these online, these little clay lamps filled with oil, and they had a, a light at the top of them. And to us, they seem, you know, woefully insufficient. It's like, well, how many lumens that thing have? Not many. But in those days, in a small house without many windows with the curtains drawn, uh, one lamp was actually capable of illuminating an entire room. And you could, you know, Google this as, as well, but they had lampstands. Because if you put the lamp down too low, it it actually didn't illuminate the whole room. The lamp had to be exalted. The light had to be lifted up high onto a stand. And as it was, and as it emanated off the walls in the roof, one little lamp could basically light up a whole room. 
What Mark is telling us here as he transitions from the parable of the sower to now this story about the lamp is that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is that which is going to light up the whole world. This is the hope of the nations. Right? We should really care about justice. We should really care about the justice issues of our day. And we, you know, we shouldn't just do what so many of us do, myself included, which is just scroll and get sad about all of it and then have compassion fatigue and not do anything. We should use our, our hands and our feet to act justice in the world. But what, what the Bible tells us is that it is the kingdom of Jesus that is going to be the light for the world. No, no nation, no political system, no educational system, no philosophy is ultimately going to be able to fix it. Humans need a savior. They need one outside of themselves. They need the light that is lifted high. And so Jesus uses a few kind of absurd questions to illustrate his point, doesn't he? You wouldn't light a lamp and put it under a basket, burn your whole house down. You wouldn't light a lamp and put it under the bed. That would be really weird. A lamp that is lit is meant to be lifted high so that all can see it. And what Jesus is telling these, these folks in Mark is that as the kingdom comes and throughout Mark's gospel, as it is revealed more and more, the kingdom is going to light up the world. It's going to reveal the character and nature of God. Remember last week, God is the sower. He's the one who sows. He's the one who does the work. God is the one who gives the grace. We are the ones who respond. And in that way, the lamp also reveals us and our need to be those who trust Jesus by faith. That's why I love these baptisms. And whether it's a baby or an adult, it is just such an example of need and dependence and trust. Because the revelation of the kingdom, the words of Jesus, if, they don't, if they're not accompanied by the Spirit working in us to trust and depend on those words, they're meaningless. They don't bring life. In fact, they may actually bring death. Puritan theologian John Owen put it this way, faith is required for a genuine and true knowledge of God. And he quotes John chapter 5 here, speaking to the religious leaders, Jesus says, you study the scriptures, but you can't really understand them because you don't see me. Another scholar, Mike Reeves, who's a Trinity scholar, puts it this way, you can have a notional knowledge of God. You can have a lot of data about God, factoids. Propositions, sentences. You can have a notional knowledge of God and of his word, but if those scriptures don't take you to Christ, you're in trouble. The Spirit must work in the word to unite us to Christ, or the Bible is merely a dead book. Or worse, a collection of facts to be studied by university scholars. Or even worse than that, self-help. The Bible is not a book for the self-help section. There is much wisdom in it on how to live, but what the Bible does is reveal to us the kingdom of Christ, and it is a light that lights up the whole world. It reveals all. And in that way, the kingdom reveals us too, our true heart, our motives, the ways that we want to build our own kingdoms and serve ourselves. And the question Mark is asking, and Jesus is saying is, will you let Will you let the light shine and do that? Will you trust God that as you are revealed and exposed and vulnerable, he's not going to crush you and destroy you? Because you don't need to perform. You don't need to strive. The work is already done. It is finished for you. So let the light reveal you without fear. You are free. 
Because the light that reveals is the same light that saves. That's the kingdom that can't be hidden. Then Jesus uses this interesting illustration about the measurement. What is going on here? Well, I'm happy to report that most scholars would agree this is kind of tough to understand. I'll do my best. The basic idea is, you know, the the measurement of grain and flour at the marketplace. Here's what Jesus is saying. The light has come. It's exalted. This kingdom reveals all. And the measure you use with that kingdom, it will be given unto you. Here's the point. The kingdom is one of abundance. It is not one of scarcity. It is one of abundance. What will you do with the kingdom that has been revealed? Will you use a tiny little measurement? Fearful? I'm not sure. To those, Jesus says, what you already have is going to be taken away because you're myopic and you're fearful and you're not trusting. Or will you measure boldly and abundantly and gratuitously and generously? Will you dole out the grace of the God and the kingdom of Christ in such a way that people are almost drawn to say, it's too much. It's too much love, too much forgiveness, too much. A few commentators liken this story to the parable of the tenants. Do you remember that? I'm sorry, not the tenants, the talents. Where the... You know, the man gives out the the talents for his workers to invest. One guy takes it, gets a 10x return. I'm sure he's bragging to all his friends, you know, probably did some Bitcoin. One guy takes it, throws it at S&P 500, you know, 3% or whatever. Then one guy takes it and buries it in the ground. When the master comes back, he goes, I was afraid. I know you're a hard master. I was just, I was afraid. And the story's pretty Pretty harsh, but the master goes, man, you're, you're under my judgment. You knew who I was and you did nothing. Why, why didn't you trust me? And so these parables, as they frequently were in the Old Testament, are also a warning to us. These parables are prophetic. Hear and see and you will live. Blind your eyes, close your ears and you will die. You have to choose. I hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You're anxious, he says. There's a lot going on in the world. There's wars and rumors of wars. You watch the news too much. You got stuff in your own life. You got marriage and kids and relationship and family. And then there's that guy at work. Oh, Jesus, help me with that guy at work. And you can guess who that is for me. Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Everything will be given unto you. With the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. To those who measure with the generosity of God's grace, it will be more abundant than you can imagine. And that's why the deep meaning of this little story is actually found in verse 25. How prone we are to go to our sense of works and righteousness. And Jesus sets him straight. He says, for the one who has will be given more. That's the deep meaning here. That's the secret of measuring out with generosity the kingdom is that it is in the first place for you and for me a gift. The gift of God's grace. And when I hear about measuring and equity, I thank God that he is not fair. I thank God that you and me do not get what we deserve. I thank God that we do not stand under the kingdom principle of his fairness for you based on your ability to do it right. 
that when God approaches us through Jesus, it isn't a condition of fairness and failure, but instead, it's his faithfulness to you. That's the parable of of the measurement. That it's God who's generous. It's God who can't be exhausted. That it's his grace and mercy that can't run out. He's just and he's fair. But his fairness doesn't fall upon you. It has fallen upon Christ. So that upon you, the gift of his faithfulness can be given. Abundant grace. It's the song we sang earlier. No one can hinder him. No one. Nothing in your life. Not your your tiny, weak measurements, not your doubt, your fear, your insecurity, your past that he knows all of and then some. He knows more about your past than you did because he knows why you did all that dumb stuff. No one can hinder thee. And after this, Jesus gives us two seed stories, two agricultural stories. The farmer that sows seed and has to humbly Stand by and watch as the earth itself mysteriously gives the growth. And the parable of the tiny, insignificant mustard seed that grows into the biggest tree in the garden upon which even the birds rest. I love that Jesus uses these two seed stories and I want to encourage you. Whatever it is you like to do, cooking, painting, drawing, golfing. I know for a lot of you guys it's skateboarding, snowboarding, movie watching. Hiking, I see some of you with your poles trying to hurt people, speeding up the mountain. You know, for me, it's, it's the, the sport of eating. I'm amazing at the sport of eat. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God and get you some seed stories. Because if Jesus were, you know, out and about with his buddies in our day and age, he might have used a different metaphor. You know, the kingdom of God's like a leaky fat, flat roof. You know, the, king, the kingdom of God's like a La Nina winter without a lot of snow except for snows at the end of the winter. You know, the kingdom of God is like me hitting this golf ball and it going every time into the sand trap. Jesus is on mission. So although the parables do bind up the hard-hearted so that they can't see or hear, the posture of Jesus in revealing the secrets of the kingdom is mercy and abundance and welcome. And he sets the example for us. What do you love to do? Do it for the glory of God and use those things as seed stories to share about his kingdom. The laborer simply reminds us that the kingdom is out of our control. Now, the Jews of this day, they're just like us. I never want to caricature the religious folks and the Jews of Jesus' day. You and me would have all been in the same boat, 100%, except for maybe two of you that are spiritual. The rest of you would have been with me. Questioning Jesus, not getting it, misunderstanding it, frustrated with it, doesn't fit my box, doesn't meet my expectations, don't like how it rubs up on my assumptions. These Jews wanted the kingdom now. They've been waiting 400 years. And worse than that, they had the stories of David and the kingdoms. They knew how great it was. They saw what it was now. They're under Roman oppression. They want the kingdom now. They want it on their terms. So they did a lot of things and they tried to do all those things really right. As if to say, hurry up, God. Hurry up. We get it. We've read the scriptures. Now it's your turn. Do it. Show up. Thank you. Jesus tells us here is the kingdom's not like that. If Jesus came back nowadays in New Mexico, which he probably would because he'd want a chili relleno, he would not come from, you know, the place of power at the state capitol or the place of intellect at the lab 
or, or the place of whatever. Jesus would come humble and lowly out of some town in northern New Mexico you have never heard of and are probably too scared to visit. And in a way that you would just go, that doesn't make any sense. And this story reminds us that it's not up, up to us to make sense of the kingdom. It is up to us to humbly receive it and respond to it. Because the farmer sows the seed. And in this story, it's, it's God who is like the earth, mysteriously bringing growth. It reminds me of Paul in, in Corinthians, right? Where he says, look, I, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We don't know how this is happening. It's Sunday morning and you're all here. We're here in Santa Fe, 2,000 years later. It's a miracle. God gives the growth. And the growth is a gift. It is a gift that we are meant to be encouraged by and humbled by and feel the embrace of the Father by. So hear this quote. The kingdom is not what we think because so often in our own estimation, we are not who we think. We either greatly overestimate ourselves in works and righteousness and religious pride. We're not sinners. We don't need help. Or, and equally pernicious, we greatly underestimate ourselves. I'm not made in God's image. It's just the material world. I'm not really worth much. Or if God really knew everything about me, I don't think he could still love me. But no. It is because Jesus reveals his kingdom to us that not only do we know we are free from the death trap of overestimating pride, but we are, because of Christ, the giver, also more loved and worth more than we ever dared dream. As we said in our confession of faith, there is always forgiveness with you. I just want you and me to think about that. Think about it in the way that you interact with yourself. Think about it in the thoughts that you allow to go through your mind. Think about it in the way that you interact with others and the people that you and me have written off. There is always forgiveness with Jesus, yes, because he gives the growth and we respond. We respond with the readiness of those who are, who are willing and able to reap the harvest that God has provided. And finally, the mustard seed. It's kind of like, you know, a four-punch combo, and this is the last punch that hits the jaw and knocks you out. Because again, like us, the Jews of this day, they wanted a big display of power. They thought the Messiah was going to come in on a war horse, not a donkey, with face paint and 15 swords and slay the Romans, and all of a sudden, geopolitical, ethnic Israel would be exalted, and yeah, sure, the nations would be blessed, but they'd only be blessed as, you know, they came there and and, and did all that stuff. They wanted the Romans overthrown, and they were going to work hard, pious and holy, law-abiding and keeping citizens to show God they could do it, and now it was his turn. Jesus shows us a kingdom that's just like the baptisms that we've seen. Small and insignificant. And he says, I will take what is small to you and insignificant to you, you know, a, a Jewish rabbi with a band of fishermen hooligan up from Nazareth, I'm going to take what you would consider nothing and out of that is going to grow the greatest truth that this world has ever seen or will ever see. And it won't just be for one nation, it will be for all the nations so that Daniel chapter 4 is fulfilled and those birds, which are the leaders and kings of the world, will come and rest on the branches of the gospel. 
You see, it's only the gospel that can go to every tribe and tongue and nation and go into and bless and appreciate and redeem every culture. Because the gospel isn't based on one language or one culture or one people group. It is the good news for every man and woman and for me. For us, this means something very powerful for the people God has put in your life this Easter. There's a lot of craziness in the world, isn't there, right now? Everybody's kind of on edge. I don't know. I'm still feeling it. Maybe you aren't, but come and pray for me and counsel me later and help me. I need you. You need me. I'm feeling like it's just things. As Jesus reveals to us with the eyes of faith the realities of the kingdom, we don't bury our head in the sand, nor do we climb to the temple and meditate all the pain away. We are in the world and not of it because we know where this is all going. We know where this is all going. We know who our king is, and we know he will be faithful, not fair, to bring for us the blessings of his kingdom. So for us, the prayer is also a promise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not what we think it is. There's so much more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning and these four parables and stories. For this wisdom, give us the eyes of faith that we might, that we might see. Even as we come to this table, Jesus, help us see again that you are the one who does it. You're the light exalted. You're the abundance that fills up our cup and overflows. Jesus, you're, you're the ground that brings forth the glorious harvest. And you are the mustard seed that everybody would have looked at and said, there's no way. And yet you conquered sin and Satan and hell and death itself that you might, by grace, bring us to this table to feed us. So Jesus, as we come here, I, I just pray it would be, even with the faith of a mustard seed, even for my brothers and sisters that are here and they're, they're hurting, they're lonely, they're suffering, they're questioning, they're doubting, but basically they're human. <laughs> Lord, that if they, if they believe even with the faith of a mustard seed, would you confer unto them all of your benefits, all of your mercy, all of your inheritance, for it's not the subjective you know, quality of their faith, but it's the object of their faith, you, that is strong enough to save. So Jesus, I pray you would meet us here. You would remind us that when we come in out of the cold, you, you don't make us you know, get into the shower before we jump in the bath. We come with trust and dependence like little children and you give us a meal. So feed us here by your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.